Well, candidly, this morning I feel sort of like the guy who came home from yet another long, long day at work. And there were a number of things on his mind which he felt needed to be said, but there was no real easy way for him to say them. Honey, you know that I love you, but I often feel unappreciated. Sweetheart, I know your days are full and taking care of things around here isn't easy, but I really wish you'd greet me at the door with a kiss when I get home. You know, dear, it would really mean a lot to me if we would go for a nice long walk together this weekend. Well, the man, feeling quite happy with himself and about how the conversation had gone, sat down and turned the TV on. A few minutes later, his wife came and sat down beside him, and pulling out pen and paper, she looked at her husband and replied, Oh, sweetheart, I'm so glad you said something. There are a few things that I've been dying to say to you as well. I really feel like that's a little bit of where we find ourselves this morning. Today's sermon text isn't likely one that I would have picked or prioritized personally in my preaching schedule. This passage that I'm, uh, that I'm bringing before you today is one that many preachers typically avoid or sidestep out of a fear of being misheard, misunderstood, or even being accused of some sort of shameless self-promotion or greed. There really ought to be a warning label over 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and following that simply says, danger ahead, pastors proceed with caution. Well, let me just state for the record this morning, here at the beginning of today's message, that to me, from my perch, there is no domestic disturbance going on, at least as I'm aware in this particular family of faith, by any stretch of the imagination, not with me nor with any of the elders in this church. Beloved, hear me when I say this. My only agenda today is God's agenda for us. I bring no uh, axe to grind here with this congregation, much to the contrary. Listen, typically speaking, consecutive exposition through books of the Bible is how we roll and how we go about preaching here at Trinity. And I praise God that that is our common conviction and approach to the Holy Scriptures. Because the Bible says in many places, including Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, maybe a peculiar place to see such a verse, that every word of God proves true. Every word of God. Every word of God is the word of God, even the hard parts or the less desirable parts for us to look at. To quote another famous passage, also from the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. This, of course, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. Listen, it really does take a whole Bible to make a whole church and to make whole Christians. We need every single line in the Word of God. So, expository preaching, that is the sort of preaching that we've grown accustomed to hearing here at Trinity, and praise God for it, is based upon the conviction that God Himself gets to set the menu for His people. God determines the message that we get to hear. Now, sure, some texts taste a little bit more like filet mignon. Some texts just are juicy and you can't wait to get to the table to hear God's word. And some taste like peas and carrots, right? Some are like the Brussels sprout passages that we really don't want to hear. And I, I feel like that's sort of the text that God has in store for us this morning, but it's really not. It really is a savory section of scripture. Listen, a healthy Christian 
And a healthy church, for that matter, will learn to love and appreciate all the delicious and divinely inspired portions of God's book, the Bible. If God didn't think we needed it, he would not have inspired it and preserved it for us. We need all of this book. Even as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We do need to savor, even to suckle upon the choice marrow of the Word of God, even these passages that we want to sort of relegate to the side. Every last word in this book is true, it is good, it is purposeful, and it is pleasing for our lives as believers. Amen? So we're going to lean into it this morning. With that preamble in mind, we caution, uh, we proceed with caution ahead. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, the passage now open before us, comes in a series of passages. It's the third part in a larger section that's going to actually spill over into 1 Timothy chapter 6 next Sunday morning. That's all about how we rightly honor one another within the household of faith, how we honor one another. No part of God's body is unimportant and to be dishonored. But particularly, this passage, verses 17 to 25, are about how we, as the church of Christ, provide proper honor and proper care for those who dutifully and faithfully care for the church. How do we care for those who care for us as the congregation? Listen, the Apostle Paul's aim in these verses, quite simply, is to explain to a young pastor named Timothy, and then through Timothy to the entire Ephesian congregation, how they are to compensate, how they are to confront, and how they are even to choose godly leaders who love and care for God's family. Right honor for godly and faithful shepherds within God's household is really what this passage is all about. Now, admittedly, Reading this passage today feels a little bit like breaking open our Bible Fellowship Church Principles of Order. For those of you that might be familiar, it's this blue book that you got acquainted with a little bit in our membership classes, or the red book perhaps that has our doctrine in it. By the way, I remember having not only to read the biblical principles of order, but to memorize all 28 articles of faith. So you guys need to be nice to me and Pastor Jerry for all that we've gone through to be your pastors here in this congregation. But it's true, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and following really reads like an ecclesiastical or church employee handbook. It really does, because it partly is just that. Who, if anyone, should be paid in the church? And further, who or how should we handle issues of clergy misconduct or perhaps mistreatment of clergy within the local church? Or further, what is the process and biblical guidance for selecting new members in God's spiritual house? Paul has a word to say about each of those particular questions. Remuneration, reputation, and ordination. These are the three big ideas that flow out of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. And listen, we would all do well to sit up, to take note, and pay attention carefully this morning. There might be some of you tempted to to check out. There might be some, maybe this is time to check out. I'm not exactly sure. Some of you might be tempted to take a week off because clearly this passage is for Pastor Jerry or this passage is for the elders or Pastor Dan, certainly not for you. And I hope you'll change your perspective and really focus this morning. 
I couldn't agree, I couldn't disagree with you more if that is your view. This text has relevance for your life. And if you think it doesn't, just try ignoring these precepts and principles for a week, for a month, for a year in the local church and see how things work out and shake out. No, friends, issues of church order are, in fact, gospel issues. Issues of church order are important issues for godliness and life and practice in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40 says, All things are to be done decently and in order. Our God is gracious, but our God is a God of proper order. God wants us to do church the way that he has commanded us to do church. And so he puts passages like 1, Corinthians, 1 Timothy chapter 5 in the Bible for us. If God said it, then we must read it. If God said it, we must believe it. And if God said it, we must heed it. For listen, without proper attention to church order, we are bound for disorder. We are bound for unfruitfulness, and eventually we are bound for ineffectiveness in our ministry. Who are we to think we know better than the living God? So listen, in short, 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 25, contrary to popular opinion, is not just for ministers. It's not just for pastors. It is for the whole people of God who are commanded to the last man or woman to care for those who care for them in obedience to Christ. This is how we honor those who are the spiritual heads or the fathers or the leaders in our church family locally. So why is this important? The fact of the matter is, friends, that the statistics behind pastoral burnout are startling and sobering. For example, in January of 2021, a Barna survey indicated that 29% of pastors at that time said they had considered leaving the ministry within the last year. 29%. Just 10 months later, undoubtedly due in part to a weighty, the weighty challenges of leadership amid a global pandemic, not to mention political division within the United States, the number was already up from 29% to 38% of ministers saying they had considered leaving within that last year. By March of 2022, the number was at 42%, almost half, thinking about leaving the ministry. A LifeWay research study stated that nearly 2% of ministers, of pastors, leave the ministry before retirement. 2% doesn't sound like a lot, but that's one out of 50. One out of 50 ministers never make it to the finish line. They never make it to the finish line. In the same survey, an additional 5% indicated that they had moved to new non-lead pastoral positions because of the stress of ministry. And I know what they're talking about. 13% of pastors, according to this survey, were no longer in full-time ministry for reasons other than death or retirement. Ministry, while often thrilling, will often always, often chew you up and spit you out. Ministry can be a grind. Well, what are the reasons behind so much change and so much uh, upheaval for so many? Well, of those who said they had experienced a change in their pastorate, according to to the LifeWay survey, about 26% indicated that they had left because of a significant conflict with other members in their church. Church fighting, church friction had led them to change vocations. Additionally, 13% said that that they felt they were a poor fit. And they consequently moved on in light of that fact. 
What's more, 17% noted that they left their position due in large part to family issues. 13% admitted to a change because of some moral or ethical issues or failing. About 10% said they left because of pastoral burnout. They simply could not emotionally handle the job any longer. 8% said they left for financial reasons. They couldn't make ends meet. And 5%, a mere 5% said they left on health reasons alone. Listen, I've yet to meet someone who's made it through the marathon of ministry unscathed. Unscathed. I think of what Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 17. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I'm not, talk, I'm not trying to be some uh, ministerial martyr this morning, but I am trying to paint a realistic picture of the hazards of church ministry in life. It's not for the faint of heart. Now listen, the sad reality today is that too often... Pastors sense, and sometimes, mistakenly so, they're not always right, you know, and I know you guys know that, right? Pastors are not always accurate with these feelings, but sometimes they sense a lack of support in their church. Sometimes they sense a loss of community. They have no friends in their community, in their church. Sometimes it's the crushing weight of unbearable expectations or the fear of being ineffective in their calling as a minister of the gospel. Listen, to me, this is much, much more than mere anecdotal evidence. I have witnessed personally in my role as a member of the church health board for the Bible Fellowship Church, too many pastors who are buried under the weight of their ministerial calling. They are but a day or a decision from leaving the ministry. I have experienced personally the stress and the strain of church leadership today. And I am not ashamed to say that on more than one occasion... Particularly over the last 10 years, I have considered calling it quits myself. And yet, by God's good grace and God's sovereign calling, I'm still hanging in. And God's still holding on to me. This is real life for all of us, but it's real life and death for some of us. And we need to take these matters seriously. The real question flowing out of 1 Timothy chapter 5 is simply this. How can a faithful local church care well for its pastors and elders. And listen, we're not simply talking about the few of us that are on the payroll in the church, the full-time pastors. And I'm not, be careful, I'm not talking about just the full-time pastors. 1 Timothy 5 and uh, 17 and following, here Paul is providing instructions for how we are to care for, promote, protect, and, and promote or elevate all elders, all elders whom the Lord gives to a local church vocational elders who we call pastors and non-vocational elders that we call elders in the church are equally to be honored, obeyed, and prayed for within the local church. And we're going to do that at the end of this sermon this morning. We're going to pray for our elders this morning. Paul's instructions, though, provide us with three very clear expressions of God-honoring care for God-honoring leaders. God-honoring care for God-honoring leaders. First, Churches care for those who care for them by providing an ample amount of compensation for their work of preaching and teaching. That'll be the first point we'll look at in just a moment from verses 17 and 18. But secondly, notice as well today that churches care well for those who care well for them by protecting elders 
and those out front from false or spurious accusations. Paul is clear about that in verses 19 through 21. And then thirdly, churches also care for those who care for them by patiently examining elder candidates and not too quickly ordaining them to the work of church leadership. That really is the summation of the point in verses 22 to 25 of our passage. So we could break it down this way. Generous compensation, legitimate confrontation, and careful choosing, careful selection of leaders in the church. Because here's the deal, if you don't know this, you are Jesus's family. The church is Christ's congregation. My name might be on the bulletin, but his name is written in your hearts. And I know it, church. I know it. You are not my flock. You are Jesus's flock. And so there ought to be a right mutual love and care between a minister and the congregation. The right honor of godly and faithful elders is a key element of your godly behavior in the local church. That's why this message really is for each one of us. Because a church that honors and supports its shepherds well and biblically and faithfully is a church that is honoring and caring for the Lord, that glorifies the Lord. They are one and the same. So, firstly... Much like the previous section, and if you were with us last week, you heard the message about the proper support and care of widows. Much like the previous section, which went from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, the obligation to support particular widows within the church, here the Apostle Paul likewise begins with instructions for the church to properly care for elders or pastors by giving a brief justification concerning a congregation's righteous obligation to provide due respect and practical monetary support for those who devote their time and energy, either full or part-time, depending upon the circumstances, to the work of the church. Listen again to what God's Word says. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now you'll remember that back in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul had provided a list of personal qualifications for the dual offices of church elder and church deacon. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Thus, in addition to the character of a godly servant... 1 Timothy chapter 5 is going to provide us with a glimpse at the activity of a faithful servant. What does an elder do? You might be wondering that some weeks, might you? What does an elder do? Well, Paul tells us what an elder does. Let the elders, the word there is presbyteros, let the elders who rule, the word rule, let me camp for a moment, that word probably strikes you maybe a little nasty. We don't like to rule over other people. Maybe some of us like to rule over people, but we shouldn't like to rule over people. It better could be translated manage, or perhaps even the word lead. Let the elders who lead well, even the idea is preside. The elders who preside over the church are to be counted worthy of double honor, especially, again, the the construction there is particularly with the work 
of preaching and teaching. Okay, that's what Paul is saying here. And several things are worth noting specifically. First, in case you've forgotten, not everybody who's older is an elder, right? On one level, the word elder does refer to maturity and age, but not biblically constructed of the church. Not every older person is an elder of the church. Elders, rather, are spiritually mature male leaders in God's house who rule or manage God's family specifically by accurately and effectively communicating divine truth. Let me make it painfully clear. All elders rule by teaching God's word. In fact, a non-teaching elder is a contradiction in terms. Let me say that again. You don't elect uh, board members. You are to elect shepherds. And shepherds have one playbook, and it is the word of God. And if we aren't speaking out of the word, we have nothing to say. Elders are to shepherd with their Bibles open. Elders labor in letters and lives. Elders label, labor in letters, the word of God, and in lives, the people of God. The truth of the matter is that elders are to be mature men who minister the word of God by the spirit of God to the people of God for the glory of God. That's what we do. Now, candidly, sometimes we do more than that. And that's a bit of being out of order in the church. When elders veer into other areas of church life, it comes at the cost of what they are actually called to do, which is why we need to have rightly ordered deacons and rightly ordered Sunday school teaching and so on and so forth. Secondly, I want you to notice from what Paul says here, though, he does draw attention to the fact that evidently in the early church even, again, this is in the early 60s AD, just three decades after the death of Christ, that some and probably not all elders were especially worthy of double honor. Those giving themselves some amount of time, full-time, part-time, these are contemporary categories that may, they may not have had in the first century, to the work of preaching and teaching. All elders are worthy of honor and respect. However, some elders are deserving of this sort of honor being shown both in respect and in remuneration. As, as John Stott puts it, conscientious elders should receive both respect and remuneration, both honor and an honorarium. I think that's a helpful way to put it. Now, several notable New, Test New Testament texts come to mind in support of how we should care for and provide for church leaders. Let me name a few of these or cite a few. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. There Paul says, We ask you, brothers, in respect to those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Just drawing out of that, not so much the idea of financial compensation, but the idea of, a, of honor, especially because it is strenuous work. Being a pastor is not a nine-to-five job. It's not a job like that at all. It is a full-time calling, 24-7, virtually 365, and Praise God for it, because God's people need to be served. 
But Paul says, respect those who labor over you in the Lord. Notice also Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. And keep this in mind over lunch this afternoon, please. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Remember that when the turkey is getting low there in the buffet line. The idea is we should share with those who teach us God's word. It's a good instinct and a good virtue. But I think the most clear and perhaps the most relevant on the topic of financial support and compensation for us this morning is what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 4. There Paul says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Remember, Paul is laboring just strenuously in the, on his foreign mission trips, or on his mission trips for that matter. And he says, do we, not verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority, Paul says? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, and here's our same verse from 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul sort of laughs. Is is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake, Paul says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop also. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, now Paul was in a category all his own. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Couldn't really get any more clear than that by the Apostle Paul. And let me just say as an aside, I have struggled, especially early on in ministry, with the idea of getting paid to be a Christian. I have really struggled with that. But God, in his providence and wisdom, knows that in order for the church to thrive and and grow, compensating ministers is a good thing. And so he puts it in his book. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, notice what it says there. The Apostle Paul here bases the church's spiritual and practical obligation to care well for faithful shepherds who lead well by preaching and teaching God's word by pointing to two sources. He points in the first way to the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4 where we read, You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Both common sense, friends as well as the codified law given by God to Moses, tell us that hard work ought to be rewarded practically. It just makes sense. Much like an ox was not to be muzzled when plowing a field under the hot conditions and the, over the many painful hours, so too pastors and elders were to be considered worthy of 
practical support in their many, many laboring hours of service in the Word and in the church. Because you are God's field, and we are workers of the Word. That's simply the point that Paul is making. Be it preaching or teaching, be it counseling, uh, be it training, be it discipling, whatever it is. I don't know what your vision is of what I do during the week. But let me tell you, there are many, many opportunities to pray with, to disciple, to care for, and to repair the Word of God for the people of God. And it takes time, and practical compensation is worthy. In addition to the Old Testament, Paul is also going to point to the New Testament, but more specifically, he points to the very words of Jesus himself. These are words that are found in Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. Paul writes here, or actually Luke 10, 7, firstly says, You yet remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Paul, I think, is drawing upon this oral tradition of what Jesus had said, and it, it makes its way into several passages in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard this before. Lord, you keep him humble. We'll keep him poor. Maybe you've heard that before. Lord, you keep, we'll keep the man poor, but you keep him humble. Friends, that in no way reflects the heart behind 1 Timothy chapter 5. That's not what Paul is getting at. Rather, the principle here is that a faithful church ought to endeavor to be as gracious as possible with their pastors, providing reasonable and generous compensation for those elders who devote the majority of their time and attention to teaching and preaching the Word of God. Now, I'm almost done with my first point, but I can't leave this point without saying this. This church is to be lauded and commended. I'm not preaching this way this morning to chastise you, but to encourage you. You are to be lauded and commended. As far as I know and as, per, as I am concerned personally, you have a proven track record going long before my time here at Trinity of caring faithfully and caring well for your ministers. Praise God for you. And would he give you the grace to continue doing that regardless of who occupies this space where I am right now. You love the Lord, not just the man God sends your way. And you serve the Lord by supporting and caring for him well. Keep doing what you're doing. But listen, payment of pastors was certainly not Paul's only focus here in this text. And this is where we'll gain some momentum as we move towards the conclusion. I want you to notice that the proper care of elders and leaders likewise involves a congregation's commitment to protecting its leaders from false or frivolous accusations. Paul is very mindful of this as well. In other words, in the church, there should be no quarter. There should be zero tolerance for mean-spirited or malicious speech gossip, slander, or empty accusations, frankly, towards anyone, but especially towards the Lord's leaders. Do we understand that? However, and this is part B of the same point, when a leading servant steps out of line and refuses to repent, then a faithful body does not bury its eyes. It calls him out. That's what this text is saying as well. 
It calls him to account and rebukes that erring elder publicly so that the whole body of Christ might learn to fear the Lord. See, protecting the church means protecting elders from false accusation and protecting faithful congregations from straying and and salacious elders. It works both ways. Notice again our passage beginning in verse 19. Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, and I believe he's referring still to elders here, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, notice three witnesses here, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Now, regrettably, many congregations have tended to treat their paid staff like hired hands. Church is not a business. It's a body. It's a body. Church abuse really does cut both ways. To become a leader, really, in any organization, but even specifically in the church, as many of you know, is to subject yourself to the expectations and the opinions and the insults and, sadly, the accusations of others. Tests come with the territory of church ministry. A leader is a natural target. Sometimes they are the subject of criticism when they don't deserve it, and other times they're the subject of compliment, uh, uh, commendation when they don't deserve it either. It really sort of, you get too much of the credit, you get too much of the blame when you are the one up front. But being a leader brings both blessings and heartaches. That's part of what Paul is getting at. Paul very clearly wanted to remind Timothy in order to remind the Ephesian congregation that they should care for their pastors by protecting the reputation and the ministry of their pastors and elders. Specifically, from baseless rumor, from innuendo, from idle gossip and false accusation, because this does not honor the Lord. There are three quick points under this second heading that I want to bring to you this morning. Three important corrective instincts that I think we all need to bear in mind. First, and I've stated this already, but unfounded and unsubstantiated charges and accusations are not ever to be permitted or entertained against a church leader or elder. It's out of line. Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Let me make it very clear. Petty complaints against your pastors and elders should be put to rest and not tolerated. Don't give oxygen to those things. But stick with me. I got another word to say in a moment about that. Hebrews 13, 17 gives us the reason why that's the case. Obey your leaders, the writer of Hebrews says, and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account, though not to you, they will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and my ministry will be evaluated. And I'm so grateful he's the gracious judge of all the earth. But you don't need to worry about letting me know every uh, error that I make. Petty complaint is not 
your prerogative. It's not your place. However, where there is a legitimate accusation, and there are legitimate accusations and issues from time to time, this is why I want you to stay with me, because you do have a part. The regular process of church discipline ought to be employed, according to Matthew 18, 15, and following. In other words, you don't put it on the church bulletin board. You go to the person himself. You go to your brother or you go to your sister and try to work it out. And then if you can't gain a hearing, you take somebody along with you. That's church discipline. And pastors are not above church discipline or not above uh, what is righteous here. Particularly given the sensitive and public nature of pastoral leadership, though, no charge or accusation should be admitted unless it has been well established. Why? Because once a pastor's reputation is besmirched, it cannot recover. It's really, really hard to recover it. So be careful in your correction. Be careful in your confrontation. No undermining the under-shepherds is one way to put it. At the same time, and here's point number two under the second heading, stubbornly sinning and erring impenitent elders who love their sin more than they love their Savior ought to be rebuked publicly and removed from office probably for good. Paul continues in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. A bad apple spoils the barrel. While faithful leaders are owed proper protection from false accusation, rebellious and sinful leaders are due something else entirely. They are due public rebuke and probable removal. Erring elders are a threat, not only to themselves, but also to the entire entire family of believers. Whether it's doctrinal drift or perhaps moral decay, bad behavior is a blight on the body of Christ. And Ephesus clearly had its fair share of problematic leaders. The public trust of church leadership doesn't put somebody in a category above the law of Christ. But rather, because pastoral leadership is prominent and public ministry, occasionally poor decisions and bad acting demands public rebuke in the presence of all so that all may learn to fear the Lord. Holiness, in short, is the honor code of the house of God, and it starts at the top. And really, the top is the bottom. Verse 21 gives us the third important instinct that deserves brief comment under point number two, and then we'll move to our closing this morning. Paul says to Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. And do nothing from partiality. Joel knows this. The picture here really is of blind justice. Blind justice. The Roman goddess Justitia was, as she wears a blindfold to avoid pre, uh, prejudging prejudice. And she holds a balance in one hand and a sword of judgment in the other. Just in the same way Paul charges Timothy, who had very important influence and responsibility to remain impartial in the discharge of his apostolic authority in the early church, which was delegated to him by Paul. We get the impression, don't, do we not, that Timothy was often one who struggled with standing his ground. You might say he had a weak constitution. 
Let no one look down on you for your youth. 1 Timothy 4 verse 12. Or perhaps 2 Timothy 1 7. Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. But listen, as anyone who knows church leadership or been in church leadership knows, it is easy to get cold feet when it comes to confronting sin. It is easy. Paul here is unequivocal. Timothy was not meant to lean in one direction or the other. That's really the idea of favoritism, leaning towards one side. He was not to prejudge or play favorites. Nepotism is a no-no in the house of God. So when it comes to correcting elders, really there's just three things for you to keep in mind. Salacious gossip is to be silenced. Sinful leaders are to be publicly rebuked. And showing favoritism is simply out of the question. Got it? Got it. All right. Well, the remaining verses of chapter 5, to me, hold together, and this forms our last point this morning. In addition to generous compensation and rightly handled confrontation, Paul instructs us here that a church cares well by carefully and patiently choosing those who will lead in the church. Again, remuneration, reputation, and ordination, or the process of laying on of hands for proper leaders in God's church. Look at verse 22 to the end. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous. That simply means obvious or apparent, going before them into judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot be hidden. Let me give you a punchy little saying here. When it comes to choosing leaders, prudent patience prevents problem pastors. How do you like that? I worked hard on that one. Prudent patience prevents problem pastors. At four o'clock this morning, I came up with this one. Sloppy selection of shepherds is sure to sour. Guys, I could go, I could go all day. I could go all day. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. I'll sit next to you at lunch. Listen, the phrase laying on of hands simply refers to the church's formal recognition or acknowledgement of a person's readiness for responsibility and leadership within the church. It's a well-established practice, and you're familiar with it. But Paul wisely cautions Timothy from sloppily selecting leaders. Don't just slapshod choose your leaders in the church. The reason being is that it's not always initially obvious who the best candidate or most qualified candidate for leadership is. Sometimes a person's character smacks you in the face. Sometimes it smacks you in the rear. Last Sunday evening, I had the great privilege of representing the BFC at Zionsville Bible Fellowship Church as we laid hands on a young pastor by the name of Benenz Hitchcock. I'm glad, even though sometimes I wasn't so glad, that progress in the BFC is measured uh, by the sundial, not by the minutes or the seconds on a clock, right? It, it takes a while because I think it's good that we want to get to know the character of a person before they are entrusted with Jesus' church. That's the idea here. 
Listen, Abe Lincoln once said, you can fool some of the people all the time and all of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all the time. Character will come out. Character will come out. So Timothy, take your time. Timothy, do your homework in choosing leaders. Believe me, friends, it's a lot harder to remove an unqualified elder than it is to work the proper process of carefully selecting one in the first place. Therefore, ordaining only qualified elders is the third way in the text, I'm not making this stuff up, that a good church cares well for those who care for them. Compensation, confrontation, and choosing. Now, because I know Bill Bergman's not going to let me get away without addressing verse 23, let's go there for the big finish. <laughs> what is the point behind, Paul, behind Paul's parenthetical pastoral advice to Timothy personally? Well, that's what it is. This is a, I think rightly in the ESV, set apart as a parenthetical statement. No longer drink only water. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Sorry to disappoint, Bill, but there's no scandal here. There's no there, there, only sound spiritual counsel and practical advice from a seasoned apostle. Timothy's anxious nerves and worried conscience resulted in a weak stomach. Paul prescribed a little wine to help remedy his ministerial indigestion. That's really what's going on here. We need to keep in mind that there was no ancient equivalent of the Blandon Pharmacy back in ancient Ephesus. Timothy cannot just run into his local CVS and pick up some, pick up some Pepto-Bismol to settle down his holy heartburn. It just simply wasn't the case. Sometimes, even a sober-minded minister needs to take some godly medicine. Get over himself and take a Tylenol. Take, take, take something. It's not holy to be discounting practical wisdom. And that's really all that's going on here. To his credit, Timothy, if nothing else, was a man of high moral character, deep personal conviction, and a sensitive and tender conscience. I think we could really, really stand to laud Timothy this morning. He knew that Paul said an elder was not to be a drunkard back in chapter 3, verse 3. And I think, and I identify with this, Timothy was terrified of disappointing Paul. He was terrified of breaching the trust of his office. And so he was a teetotaler. Timothy was probably a total abstainer from alcoholic beverages. And so the stress of ministry was taking its toll on him. And in a time and in a culture when the sanitation of water was suspect and the remedies were few in number, Paul simply encouraged Timothy to understand that it was not only proper, but it was wise to use a little wine for the sake of his stomach. He probably diluted it quite a bit, but he took it nonetheless. Well, listen, I want to invite all the elders to come and join me here at the front. Just stand in front of the pulpit, face the congregation. As they're making their way, let me say a couple things before we close. We are blessed. We are blessed with an incredible group. Start right here in the Brian and let the guys go on either side of you. We are blessed with an incredible group of godly men who serve as elders and shepherds here in this church. And as they come on up, 
I want to coach you all up in terms of what we desire from you. Keep us in your prayers. Above all things, pray for your leaders. Secondly, encourage us often. I really feel badly, guys. Next year, we're going to do it differently. October is Elder Appreciation Month, not just Pastor Appreciation Month. I think our lay elders deserve a lot of commendation and support, and I'm sure they receive it from time to time, but encourage them faithfully in the Lord. Third, obey them or us in the Lord. And that's not a threat. It really is an invitation to blessing. Because obedience is not to be a burden to you, it is to be a blessing to you. So obey us insofar as we stand on the word of God, obey us in the Lord. And lastly, protect our reputation from being impugned. There's one real helpful way you can support your elders, and that is give no quarter, give no oxygen to rumor or malicious speak about your elders. I don't think this is a problem here. But I know it could be a problem if we give it an opportunity. So encourage, pray, obey, and protect your elders here at Trinity. Let's bow in prayer as we close. Almighty God and Father, at the end of this uh, challenging sermon for a variety of different reasons, we thank you and set apart once again these faithful brothers, seven of us, including myself, Lord, We thank you for the privilege it is. It it really is a privilege. It's a holy responsibility. It's it's an honor, Lord, to be able to serve as an under-shepherd in your church. But we have not merited this post. You have set us apart for this post. And so, Lord, we pray, oh God, we pray that we would be found faithful, that you would take this message and, and encourage us as we seek to lead as servants and shepherds of the congregation. But also we pray, Lord, that you would challenge your flock. You would challenge the church to to really carefully evaluate the the relationships and the manner in which there is give and take between pastors and elders and the uh, folks in the congregation. Lord, we're desperate for your spirit to maintain the spirit of the unity and the bond of peace. We're desperate, Lord, for rightly ordered relationships in the household of God. So thank you again. And I pray, Lord, this Uh, that you have been glorified by everything that's been said. And Lord, that we would glorify you together as we serve here in this local church. And we thank you together that we can pray this with great confidence in Jesus, the good shepherd of the church. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.